And we need to have a politics that is you know, sufficiently aware that it cannot dictate the terms of social movement and you know, the working of contradictions to places um, elsewhere in the world. Yeah, don't listen to Americans about politics. That's really not... <laughs> I mean, that might have been the truest thing Boggs said. <laughs> the philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi. Gil. Hello. And Owen. Hey. So today we are discussing James Boggs' 1963 pamphlet, The American Revolution, pages from a Negro worker's notebook. For those of you who do not know James Boggs, he was an organic intellectual and auto worker in a Chrysler factory. I believe Boggs is the first thinker we are discussing whose training did not come from the university, but instead arose from intellectual debate within a working class organization called the Correspondence Publishing Committee, which was led by CLR James, who longtime listeners will remember we did an episode on way back when, and Martin Glaberman. Pages from a Negro worker's notebook catapulted Boggs into the spotlight as a new luminary of leftist and Marxist thinking. The British philosopher and pacifist Bertrand Russell, after reading the pamphlet, wrote Boggs commending him on the power and insight he demonstrated. This began a correspondence between the two that lasted several months. Not all reactions to the pages was so favorable, as it seemed to evidence a break with Marxism, as understood by people like C.L.R. James, who took issue with Boggs' seeming rejection of the industrial working class as a revolutionary social force. Boggs instead turns to those he calls the outsiders, groups of people locked out of the labor market, as a critical source for reorganizing capitalist society along socialist lines. I do not think this critique captures the sophistication of Boggs' analyses, as it too easily suggests that he turned away from a critique of the economic foundations of capitalism and instead turns toward an amorphous notion of the most marginalized. In the time I have left, I would like to frame what I see as the core ideas of the text. I think it would be helpful to isolate three distinct yet interwoven trajectories of Boggs' thought. Boggs provides, first, a historical diagnosis, whereby he seeks to explain how and why union organizations such as the CIO rose and fell. The historical diagnosis functions as a stage setting for the second part of Boggs' thinking that I call the social theoretical diagnosis. Here, Boggs provides a contemporary explanation of the social forces within capitalist society. For Boggs, these forces are the increased domination of automation and work, the naturalization of unemployment, and the reproduction of what he calls the outsiders. Finally, Boggs situates both diagnoses within a normative framework that takes as its point of departure rights and revolution. This normative framework is essential for understanding Boggs' philosophical contribution to these debates, as he sought to unbind notions of right from national states under capitalism and instead make rights contiguous with changing economic forces. In other words, Boggs develops a novel notion of citizenship grounded in human well-being rather than national belonging. 
There are two key points that I want to draw to your attention in Boggs' historical diagnosis. First, readers may be surprised to find how hostile Boggs is to the union bureaucracy that develops under the CIO, but they should not read him as saying that unions are passe or social struggles no longer purely economic, a la some tendencies of the then contemporary new left. Instead, his point is that unions, having failed to substantially take power in the 1930s, were integrated into the social dynamics of capitalist society. What this means is that unions engage in trade-offs with management. Most fatally, the trade-off for wage increases at the expense of control over production was effectively a concession of rights on Boggs's view. For Boggs, a social group only has a right if they have the political control to enforce a corresponding duty of a right. By relinquishing control over production, the CIO handed over the creation of rights to capitalist management and the state. Traditional political philosophers might scoff at the idea that rights can be transferred via the organization of power rather than, say, a contract. But for Boggs, a right entails the capacity for practical action, and without that capacity, there is no right. As he pithily states, rights are what you make and what you take. And I want to be clear, so I'm very interested in, in this, and so I'll probably do some writing on this, but the way I understand Boggs is basically saying is, he is saying that all people need rights, but the very state of not having rights does not mean that you have a right that is being infringed upon. To have a right, you need to develop social power. And so to put this rather you know, succinctly, you, we are not born with inalienable rights. We need rights because this is what it means to be a well-functioning and whole human. But you know, rights are not simply abstractions. They're not existing somewhere apart from political and economic organization. The second key point follows from the first. With the loss of control over production in favor of wage increases and benefits, unions are forced to increasingly draw lines of demarcation between the employed and the unemployed. The ranks of the unemployed or the soon-to-be outsiders are locked out of engaging with the union and its employed workers. I think this is important because Boggs is giving his explanation for the fragmentation of the working-class power base in the United States. What follows from this fragmentation is also a materialist explanation of the continuing salience of race and racism in 1960s U.S. society, given that disproportionately the unemployed who will become the outsiders are urban blacks. So racial discrimination in and outside the labor market is not primarily explanatory, but it is also not merely ideological or epiphenomenal. For Boggs, it was the CIO movement that established, quote, in the American mind for the first time, the idea of democracy on the job, established a framework within which Negroes could fight for equality inside the plant. It has done the same for women workers, end quote. And so the fragmentation of unions was also a fragmentation of genuine democracy. I think we could have a lot to say on how Boggs weaves together race and the naturalization of unemployment in his analysis. To briefly summarize his social theoretical diagnosis, we can see that the rise of automation for Boggs is a symptom of the helplessness of unions that are now dependent on capitalist management. Automation exacerbates internecine conflicts within the working class as the process of production produces workers with either no memory or no connection to movements aimed at political control of production. Furthermore, the raised standard of living will sharpen the divide between those who work and those who don't, as the outsiders no longer have any place to go under the expanding dominion of capital. Thus, automation is not free of the inherent contradictions of capitalism, it exacerbates them. 
The analytic importance of the outsiders for Boggs is a social question concerning what happens to a society with growing ranks of men and women made obsolete by production. I do not want to take up too much time. All I will say about the central concept for Boggs is that the outsiders are an ambivalent social group for him. They are a symptom of social disintegration and maladaption, as they often must resort to crime and antisocial behaviors since they cannot be integrated into society. But they are also the place of radical thinking since they can, quote, only be absorbed into a totally new type of society, end quote. There's an important parallel between Boggs and the Fanon of the Wretch of the Earth, and I would, of course, love to explore this in a future episode where we discuss Fanon. The parallel is that for both Boggs and Fanon, the outsiders and lumpen proletariat, respectively, are the critical source for the total reorganization of society because, quote, they have to find a new concept of how to live and let live among human beings. The outsiders, the workless people, now have to turn their thoughts away from trying to outwit the machines and instead toward the organization and reorganization of society and of human relations inside society, end quote. Neither thinks this happens automatically or that they will, the outsiders, will inevitably succeed. But it is from their vantage point that the production of new rights through revolution becomes salient. I want to conclude with a short statement on Boggs' normative framework and his continued use of the language of rights. In Boggs, we find that rights are historically mediated by the social constraints of an era. While scarcity seemed to be permanent, the right to one's very life was connected to the duty to produce. But what becomes of rights once scarcity is no longer a necessity? Boggs calls for, quote, a new declaration of human rights to fit the new age of abundance, end quote. Once rights are disarticulated from the necessities of production, we will see that new values will have to emerge in our society. And so for Boggs, rights of necessity must fit the existing forces of economic production. I think Boggs fruitfully outlines the interdependence of economy, social life, and political rights such that one cannot reasonably say that socialists or Marxists do not care about rights. Instead, thinkers like Boggs understand that rights must hook into the ever-changing objective forces of social life. So with that rather long introduction, I want to hand it over to you all and ask, what did you all find contentious or illuminating in this reading by James Boggs? Yeah, I'll start. Um, Thanks for the introduction, Will. That was excellent. I found this reading really exciting, actually, and it kind of shocks, you know, to read something like this when it's 60 years old because it does not feel anything other than completely contemporary in so many ways. A couple of things that maybe I can start by answering your question. Like one of the things that he consistently draws our sort of attention to, and this is like the source of the break with CLR James, who rejects pretty much out of hand a couple of key analytic moves and claims that Boggs makes in the piece. And it has to do with the centrality of workers and the sort of sites of progressive or revolutionary activity. And he takes great issue with unions, as you said. I found this to be interesting. I mean, in in the present moment, we're seeing all these like successful waves of union drives across the U.S., And I think this is like a helpful thing then as a kind of corrective to, or maybe like as a set of warnings, right? Like it turns out that these are institutions which, yes, can give workers extraordinary amounts of power as sites of organization and as, you know, giving them the ability to like collectively bargain and make demands, but that they're also institutions that can be co-opted quite easily. So over the course of that long first chapter of the book, he tells the story of the CIO, which in the late 30s and early 40s, 
allows for like pretty radical demands to be made by and achieved by like you know workers especially in like the auto industry in Detroit but by the time we get to the mid late 50s they're fully co-opted right and like the 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 stories that he tells of the kinds of like concessions that they're making are really frustrating right like really like obnoxious and I don't know personally I found myself being like you know fuck these guys what the hell this is really ridiculous but I think you said it in the introduction that the key is that they were making even in the later the later days maybe they were making demands for like small material gains maybe a small wage increase maybe marginal benefits here and there but at the expense of making demands for control over the conditions of production right and so like that's really important i think that unionists today should like really take that to heart that like that should be the goal that should be what this is about and not just you know you know it's nice to get a wage increase but if it's at the expense of control over the conditions of your labor that might not be worth it sooner or later you're going to find that the union management is on the side of the, the bosses uh when it's time to make more radical demands yeah, so, some of what he says is like really scathing, uh, but yeah, but the evolution of unions, particularly in, like you said, in the fifties and uh, in the in the early sixties. But I think it's also important, that, you know, because it's easy when he's saying all this scathing stuff to lose lose sight of the fact that it's not like an anti-union aim. I think that he's setting out with, you know, when he writes this when he writes this book, right? Because he does want to really highlight that there was this moment, particularly during the Second World War and immediately after, when there was an opening, right? And he said there was, the unions and workers had built up an incredible amount of power and leverage. And there was an opening at that moment to expand it beyond the plant floor and to make claims on political power and political power over the economy, things outside of just the production process. So one, control of the production process, obviously important, right? But there was a moment there where he, you can tell that there was, um, you know, an, an immense desire that it had, that it would expand outside of that and become a broader trans revolutionary transformation of social and economic life. And that moment was missed and it was missed for the reasons he goes into in great detail. So I wonder just like to go back to your, you know, bringing up the question today. I mean, it's not, I, I don't think in any world would he say like, oh yeah, don't pursue, it's not, these aren't victories or don't pursue right, unionization. Totally, totally. It's that keep a synoptic view of the political and social and economic landscape and don't miss opportunities, you know, to seize genuine power rather than just to be like pacified with benefits and wages, like which are important, obviously, but not the same thing as actually possessing power. Can I ask what the, what was the um, break with CLR James that I didn't quite get that part or I don't know about it. So the break with CLR James is that James read um, and and I actually am starting to think that James might have misinterpreted the American Revolution, but he read it as Boggs completely turning against the idea that the working class was the site of a revolutionary force. So I think he read Boggs as, you know, completely disavowing Marxism and thinking that the working class was either passe or had no role to play. And it was simply uh, something along the lines of black people would have to go it alone as a social group. But mm -hmm. I, you know, and I'm curious to hear what you, what you all think. Obviously, critiques are good, but I actually don't think that that's what Boggs is saying. But that's how James understood it, because James in, um, I'm paraphrasing the, the name of the essay, is something like Black People as the, uh, as the Revolutionary Force of the United States. Oh, yeah. James advocates for the Black Revolutionary Movement only insofar as it logically leads into the working class movement. So he calls it the bacilli. It's the ferment for the transformation of 
of you know the rejuvenation of the working class. So it would seem he's reading Boggs as saying that second step, that logical moving to the working class, doesn't happen. That it is only something like a racial nationalist movement that will transform society. And I, I just I don't interpret Boggs that way. Okay, if I can add to, I think another like site of their disagreement comes out of the third chapter on classless society, where he says something like, I'm always getting asked this question, like, what is socialism when I'm talking to workers? And he's like, well, on the classical Marxist analysis or interpretation, and we can argue, I think, also whether or not this, in fact, is like the standard classic line or not. But he says on the standard Marxist line, you know, we live in a capitalist society, industrialized as it is, to whatever degree. Socialism would be when workers seize the state and use their rule uh, their control over the state to develop the forces of production to such a degree that it would become possible through the production of like you know abundant you know resources to abolish commodity production and institute a classless you know society where all needs are met. And Boggs says, okay, but you know that definitely made sense to say about Europe in the middle of the 1800s. But here now in the U.S. in the middle of the 1900s the productive forces are developed enough, right? He's like that that part where we need to like have workers seize the state and develop the, the, the forces of production, that might not actually be necessary even, right? It's not as the, and this is where the discussion about automation comes in. And he starts talking about, you know, the outsiders as not just like, you know, disenfranchised black people, which is, is in his view, like definitely like empirically what's most happening, but like the production of, a group of people for whom there aren't actually jobs at all. And so, I mean, one other way to go back to like the, the union question is that I think he wants to suggest that there is like in, internal to the unions based on their logic, because they're about organizing workers in workplaces, that they kind of can slip into a sharing this like productivist or pro-work or workerist ideology where it's like, let's improve the conditions of work. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. But what about a workless society, right? Uh, they can't like the opportunities afforded to us by these processes of automation mean that we should change change the the stakes of the discussion somewhat instead of just being like, you know, one last way of putting this is like, you know, uh, the the ideal he thinks that's shared by a lot of the, let's say, conservative union, trade unionists in his day is that they still share the ideal of full employment. And he's like, that's, that's he's like, we don't Why? need to work anymore. We like, don't yeah. need to be working, actually. <laughs> There's definitely something utopian uh, yeah. in Boggs, oh, yeah. and you know, um, the, even he uses the phrase "milk and honey" uh, yeah. at some point. <laughs> it's true, um, <laughs> but you know, and I, I don't want to talk too much because I feel like I talked so long for, with the introduction. But you know, you know, the other thing I want to say is that it also seems that what you know, Boggs. I read Boggs as a realist, so he's scathing, but I think he also understands that once you concede a right, and by that he means conceding political power. Overproduction, you will find yourself in a state of dependence on forces that you no longer can control. And so it seems to me that he is also trying to make the argument that this isn't him, as like Gil kept saying over and over, he's not arguing against wage increases, but he is trying to make the argument that wage increases won't substitute for the protection of your rights. 
You will be at the mercy of you know, what management thinks you ought to deserve. And so he's trying to say something like, so what are our objectives here? What type of society are we making? And you know, at least his analysis is that the current configuration of society is producing people who can no longer be integrated into the labor market. And the problem is there's no other place to send them. So this is just in and of itself a crisis. And if you think that you know the point is to create a society in which you can integrate all the outsiders, he thinks constitutively what automation has done is made that impossible. And so this produces all sorts of social pathologies, not only in decrease of worker power, but he's very clear on problems of crime uh, and social dissolution. And so I think what he's trying to say is something like, what should our horizon of vision be such that those who are outsiders actually have rights? And by rights, I think he means you know, the right to life, the right to the pursuit of happiness, and have the power to enforce the duty that corresponds to that right. I'm such a traditional political philosopher. I know rights entails some sort of duty on somebody. <laughs> so there, there, are, you know, there are norms and relations and commitments that would bind this new society together. Hmm. I had a kind of different reaction to the part about unions, and I, I guess I just wanted to hear out what you all were saying when you kind of like were starting with, I know he's scathing, but my different reaction is the following. I didn't actually think of the word scathing when I was reading it. And the the, the potential idea that he didn't support unions despite the critiques didn't occur to me as a possible interpretation. Neither did a nationalist argument, actually. And like maybe this is stating the obvious, but I actually think that like the point that's being made in the first couple chapters about what would later be called by the socialist movement business unionism, I take him to be articulating like a very orthodox uh, argument about trade unions. So like, because we are with us such a, uh, have such a deficit in trade union organization in the US, I think that maybe it seems surprising to see such a full throttle critique of unions from someone writing in 1963, because we cheerlead them now. But I take it to be that the, the socialists, like on the Marxist left, and most of the left, really, the socialist and communist left, what he's articulating is the classical critique of trade union unions. There's no language of co-optation because there's nothing to co-opt. It is a part of the system. So people see unions as intrinsically contradictory political organs of the working class, and they become mm. potentially conservative or defensive or whatever when the conditions of production changed, and they lack political leadership to become organs uh, that go towards socialism in the absence of a socialist or communist movement or party that tries to influence them. So like when I was reading this, I was just like, this mm. is just what Marxists think about trade unions, not wow. like a particular yeah. argument against them or something surprising. So like mm. when he gets to the parts, you know, so like in the 70s, business unionism would become what the far left started calling this form of unionism that he's diagnosing already. And then, like, there's attempts to reindustrialize. So what we now call, like, when you see Jane McAlevey talk about the rank-and-file strategy, that, you know, like, this is some new thing. It's not. It's 50 years old. Like, in the 70s, <laughs> the IS, the International Socialists, started this kind of an, a failed industrialization strategy where they were like, the point is to re-democratize the unions because they have become obstacles, you know. Mm. And... um mm. Various left groups, like some won't on the far left, like won't 
organize within unions and it's and it's an argument to to make them do so or to convince them that unions are actually continue to be good things um so there's this like because of business unionism in the US there's like this very persistent argument i at least that's how i understand it about the relationship of the left to trade unions and that's why there's like a lot of movementism on the left which i i actually think this this text is extremely historically important uh having read it this time now that i have a more skeptical side eye at like what i think of as movementism like movement cheerleading i'm now seeing like the historical moment in which looking at movements to be the alternative to the labor movement starts to be like an attractive thing because of the conservatism of the workers movement and the kind of break with the new left between labor and the new social movements like that's a very historic break that's a result of mccarthyism the industrialization this these kinds of politics that has never really healed in this country and he's seeing it in real time and i i do think there's a legitimate debate debate to be had had with clr james because i didn't know that essay was a response to boggs because i do think that instead of arguing for a redemocratization strategy within the unions he does offer an alternative and that is a point of contention about the relationship to the working class Boggs does Yeah like I, I think like the argument yeah. isn't yeah, like yeah. the initiation of the rank and file strategy it's the things Will was diagnosing you know saying in the, in the first place about turning to the unemployed and so on um, and there's legitimacy to that in in the moment but I do think that's a point of like if there is a point of disagreement with James, it's probably that that what is what it is like the redemocratization of the unions, having a left project that orients on orients on them in any way. Like it does seem like there's kind of a a debate to be had there. I mean, the, uh, yeah, the automation part of Boggs's account though seems to imply that like the the unions are obsolete because workers yeah. are becoming obsolete, right? So they're not going to be not only they're not going to be a revolutionary force, like they just won't right. be there because there won't be you know, the, the material, you know, the, the working class base, um, to, mm -hmm. to support them. Yeah. He says it's a, she says it's like at this point, he says 30 years on from when they, they were at the height of their power and could have been as, as, as you said, a force that could actually have exerted control or made revolutionary changes in the social, economic and political field. You know, he says something like asking yourself, like, what could the unions be doing right now? Or what could they have done differently? He's like, it's who cares? Like, you know, it's yeah. the, the, the moment's lost. The time has passed. Yeah. Um, the, the, the sort of opportunities afforded by like the political economy of the present have made that an obsolete question. It's not just a matter of like, you know, this or that strategic disagreement. He thinks he's like you said, he thinks he's being a realist about the, the actuality of the of the conjuncture. Yeah, and so I'm 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 curious uh, what you all think of that. So I, I think I should admit that um Aaron uh, Aaron Benahov, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. He's the one who kind of put me on the Boggs when I met up with him, and he was like, "Yo, I read Boggs as kind of an automation theorist." This is what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. And you, totally. um, I'm wondering. So here I have two questions. One. I personally read Boggs as actually kind of ambivalent about automation. He thinks that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a negative, but there's a potential possibility. So I don't read him as a sort of um, a techno-optimist, that, you know, automation will automatically lead to the land of peace, security, milk and honey, um, et cetera. But I'm wondering how you all read the role of automation and what's going on in Boggs. My, my second point that I, I find kind of interesting here is that it seems that also... Boggs, I really love this. He is also saying, 
let's talk seriously about what unemployment is. There's a way of theorizing unemployment as a natural outcome or equilibrium of, uh, of an economic system, that there is some base amount of good unemployment that will stabilize market prices, goods, etc. I'm really just thinking of, I forget his name, but he's one of the, the bad people out there. He's like, if we want to solve inflation, we need 5% unemployment. Oh, Larry Summers. Larry Summers just said this. Yeah, the good old Larry Summers. You know, just come good straight out and say it. Larry. And, you know, good old Larry. And Boggs seems to be saying another thing that we need to be thinking about in our political horizon is denaturalizing the notion of unemployment as a natural outcome, as an inevitable outcome. You know, he says something like the CIO failed to solve the problem of unemployment. Boggs does not think that you solve the problem of unemployment by trying to get employment as high as possible. It, it, in fact, this is where like things get kind of tricky. I think he thinks it's a rigged game that uh, you will run up against objective constraints and you are already conceding the idea that unemployment is you know, um, a necessary fact of social life and that this unemployment is you're actually saying is something that should be a permanent feature of this system and that will inevitably create these contradictions and fractures within the working class. So I'm wondering what you'll think. One, is Boggs a techno-optimist? Can I say like two two questions and apologies for having gone on a monologue and then just asking these, but I'll make it quick. What I love about this is that like the re like I think there's a reason, a normative argument almost or surrounding like social rights that is an argument for revolution that is very distinct to capitalist societies. And it's the one I like mm. want to be making myself. So maybe I'm just like reading too much into it. What I really like about this text is the argument that you either you either overcome whether you want to call them contradictions or these secular trends towards automation and unemployment or they will outrun the political institutions mm-hmm. that you take to try to contain them. And like I think if you see that as a genuine problem and as a harm that is going to be done to people that you can't just rectify by like reskilling and putting people and if, you know the system isn't just going to naturally reabsorb people there has to be a moral argument for why this is fucked up like that's you know mm. and I wonder what that is I think it has to do with the rights and capacities thing I just don't know and then the other part of it is like I don't know about techno optimism I think there's a contradiction in what he says about like wanting worklessness. And then like at the end of the text, he's like, like in maybe chap- like one of the last chapters on work, he's like, yeah, but the unemployed like don't have any like dignity or work ethic. And like they don't have, you know, they need some structure in their lives. So what are we going to do with them? <laughs> yeah. And like, mm-hmm. I think that's like something oh, yeah, we're thinking. He warns against falling into idleness. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, th- I wonder what, you know, there's a lot like worklessness is like kind of fashionable right now. And like, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he says that, and I there's something to that, you know, like we just can't wallow. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't see I don't see like the tech like any any techno optimism because the the automation process is what ends up generating this increasingly large class of like an underclass of um, of uh, what he calls the outsiders, right? There's those that are inside the workforce, right, and then there's those that are either pushed outside of the workforce by changes like you know technological changes, or they're never even able to enter it in the first place because of successive generations. Like, it seems to me, there's nothing inherently optimistic about it because everything hinges on the extent to which those that are outside, those that are pushed outside of employment, that those outsiders, that underclass, are able to organize and unite in some kind of way, 
right? Because just on their mm -hmm. own, there is nothing about like the creation of a larger and larger underclass that will in it, of in and of itself like join up with workers and you know create something. And in fact, what we and in fact, what we saw historically, if only, is yeah. that this? Yeah, if only. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, what we saw historically, right, is that the state and capital were actually incredibly adept at dealing with this increasing surplus population coming out of cities like Detroit and Chicago, uh, which is that mass. You know, you incarcerate and you police and you build a whole system of mass incarceration, uh, integrated into capital in the state, and that's one way, at least pr provisionally, right? Like that's mm -hmm. one way to address. The this yeah so that's why I don't, I don't see the optimism in that yeah. no yeah I I, I agree uh, so yeah I'm also just thinking about Lillian's question like you know, you know, it's actually wild reading Boggs and he's like these people you know they don't work it almost sounds like he's like they got loose values <laughs> they haven't you know broken the sweat on their brow they're just playing cards on the corner and it's like oh no I feel like I've heard things like this from black conservatives just like you need to learn <laughs> some work ethic but yeah. I I think that you know what he what he's reaching towards is with this generation of new rights and capacities that's not grounded in or linked to your ability to produce, it would be and I know it sounds hokey, but I don't think that it is because, you know, he has this real understanding of rights as capacity. It would be a new type of moral community. So in, a, in another essay, and I'll post you know, the, the, the bibliography information, he has a, a speech called Towards a New con uh, Concept of Citizenship. And basically what he comes down to is we need a citizenship that is grounded in the historical relations humanity owes to itself. And so it would not be something like, he seems to think that generating the social formation, economic formation for this new type of moral community, people would still do things. He's like, yo, people fishing would still come up with ideas. People, you know, engaging their hobbies would still come up with ideas. But, you know, the work, if you want to still call it work, would be the constant creation of institutions that would, you know, make these rights enforceable, make them, you know, make these um, duties that we owe to one another actually empirically salient rather than simply, you know, moral slogans, love your neighbor, etc. And that would create a type of work on oneself and with others and a type of political education that is distinct from the political education one gets at, you know, I have to grind in order to survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that emphasis because maybe this is one of the places where he tries to differentiate his position from what he calls American Marxists or Western Marxists and when he's polemicizing uh, against them is that like he, he comes back repeatedly to this notion to like a notion of of like political or social spirituality or some kind yeah. of moral or cultural reform that is required in addition to material transformations i like that because there's no way you can accuse this guy of like being an idealist and just saying we need to change our morals we need to change our spirit i mean go to he's church giving you a, but go to he's church giving but you, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 but he's giving you like a meticulous account of you know the material transformations over the last like you know a few decades and saying like these are the imperatives that are not just kind of economic and political imperatives if we're going to get beyond this right there's also these sort of like moral or spiritual imperatives that derive from or that come from the fact that if you grow up, as he puts it, how's he put it? Everybody here, he says, uh, yeah, we have to overcome the accumulated corruption in yeah. every American, right? And he uses this language 
over and over again. Love uh, a good corruption yeah. language. Exactly. Yeah. This yeah. is accumulated yeah. corruption. I was accumulated thrilled. You know class society. And it's like you grow up in a class society, you have this accumulated corruption inside of you. And he says this is also, you know, this accumulated corruption is also part of what's behind the, you know, more established unions becoming more interested in like being comfortable and being full than in actually controlling their own destinies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to return to the um, optimism question because like I think all of us agree he's not an opt- techno optimist, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's like this technological development creates the conditions for the possibility of classless yeah. communism, right? So that's cool. But unless, yes. you know, unless we relate to this properly, yeah, like let's go, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah. but it, I love but that, we that we're all just like, yeah, let, let's go. But if we don't seize on the revolutionary opportunity like presented by this, like the alternative is like hyper capitalist, like mass dispossession, mass immiseration, right? Where in which like, you know, yeah, we just have a swelling increase, like, ever-expanding underclass. I mean, Marx already did analyze these dynamics, right? In chapter 25 of Capital One, this is the production of an ever-larger reserve army of labor, industrial reserve army, which, as he points out, like, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you want to integrate them, but also sometimes if you're a capitalist, you could just make use of the fact that they're there to threaten your own workers, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, oh, you want to agitate for better wages? Like, those people are willing to pay, like, to bring in the Irish. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. We'll pay them pennies on the dollar. Like, keep it Keep your shit Leave together. the Irish alone, Owen. <laughs> hey, it's Maybe I've them. said this before on the in a different episode, but like what I was thinking while I was reading this is like, you know, regardless of, of whether or not the ex, like some of the automation part of it is, you know, it, it, it's born out. I mean, some of it certainly is structural unemployment yeah. and, incre- you know, but like. I, I think that there's a, a particular moment of like extreme growth that goes on. Like, so it's like a particularly acute and when there's good growth, like maybe the economy can absorb it more, but there is certainly this problem of structural unemployment. Uh, yeah. Some, some highly productive economies can like reabsorb labor better. So like, you know, that's why social democracy is like worth taking a look at like Sweden reskills people and they cut the inefficient fat and they like, put people back into the labor market and the u.s has no mechanism for that we literally oh, we have, don't you're not interested we in literally that. have no idea where those people even go like once they stop looking for work, i we don't i, I, I take, do wonder that like yeah they must once go they, somewhere like we're not creating any new jobs and then like i wonder about that too yeah and then they and like then they always refer like, to this like they've fallen out of the labor market x y and z number of people are no longer fell. in the where labor market oh, and then they, we stop they, taking statistics on them because they're no longer looking right. for work so there's this like crazy right. problem in the u.s of like where all these people are um you know like honestly <laughs> so like but and, and so like what this always makes me think of and the problem of like huge informal labor markets in the global south like people like to say that this is because capitalism is like underdeveloped and in a certain sense that's true but it's also because some industries are so highly productive that they just don't need to like absorb as much labor as used to have to be absorbed in the same industries when they were getting going or whatever. So there's this structural unevenness, you know, like if it, if people like this mm-hmm. c- combined and uneven development. And I just feel like there has to be a dope moral argument for what is wrong with this. And like I keep thinking about the term of negligence like a lot of the time we talk about like predatory behavior like capitalism is you know exploitation Mm. is a problem expropriation Mm. is a problem we're doing all this there's all these different terms we use but then it's like 
literally this system can do without you. You know, there's, that's an incredible, like, prob, like what a, what a way to live, you know? And like the word negligence gets, keeps coming up in my mind is like a defining feature of this system, like irrational and reproduced social negligence. Um, Mm-hmm. That cannot yeah. be fixed. I don't know how to. Totally. I was also just going to uh, say, you know, uh, building up what, what Lillian was saying, like, you know, the other thing that I thought was like, you know, really sort of invigorating reading Boggs and thinking about the contemporary moment. Because, you know, especially in the US, we're all thinking about rights. It seems like the Supreme Court is about to, you know, hand a setback to get rid of whatever rights. We've got like two or, left and they're on the chopping block. And, uh, and Clarence Thomas, you know, yeah, you know, as everyone knows, that's my bro right there. Oh, just, you know, <laughs> redoubled down Jesus on Christ. this notion of gun rights rooted in a historical tradition. I was telling Gil, I, I, I hate black conservatives. Like, I'm mad at, at oppression, <laughs> but black conservatives, they've got a special place. You know, I told Gil, if Number I see Clarence Thomas on the street, on site, on site, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, what Boggs is really great about, and the way this is going to build off Lillian's argument is, you know, people look at this, you know, they go, what about our rights? What about our rights? And Boggs would say something like, stop asking what about, about your rights, as if, like, you know, there's some sort of, you know, abstract moral argument that'll protect those rights. You either are able to protect your rights or you are not. And that mm-hmm. can sound kind of cold-blooded, yeah. except yeah. he's saying, you don't have a right in the abstract. I don't care what liberals might tell you or status quo centrist tell you you either have the goods to enforce that right or you don't and so when i'm thinking when i'm thinking about what lillian called negligence or you know what he calls the outsiders and all that it's not even people whose rights are being infringed upon they're just rightless they just don't have right Mm -hmm. they just don't and so you know the moral argument is deeper it's not even about how can we get them their rights it is you know how can they have organizations such that they can demand the rights for themselves and so we can even see that, you know, what Boggs is describing in this current configuration of automation capitalism isn't the infringement upon rights, it's the destruction of rights as such. And, you know, and that is like a higher level, I think, moral argument. So it's not saying, you know, you're taking away something that's mine. So you're making it me incapable of, you know, saying something is my or our social right. And that seems to me a, a, a more devastating critique. Yeah, he says that he compares those that have been pushed out of the economy in, and out of the workforce into the, uh, in the U.S. to col- colonized subjects like that are fighting for liberation who see, who basically like see and rightfully see the normative and legal system that they live in as alien to them. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know what I mean? And so like yeah. as, as basically requiring a revolution in order to, have rights in the first place. There's no possibility of just like making demands for rights and having them given to you at that point, right? It's that you have to acquire the capacity to enforce and to make something of the rights that you have inscribed somewhere. And to be clear, and I think we can also move to to this. At the very end, he starts talking about revolution. And you might think that what we're doing is some sort of, um, forgive the crude language, edgelording and saying, yay, yay, violence. But but Boggs doesn't understand revolution as necessarily violent. It may be. Mm -hmm. What he understands it as an alteration in the relations of a social structure such that rights can be enforced. And so what I think is also important here is, you know, he is making the argument that if rights are transformable in this register of what social power do you have, then it's not a question of how can we integrate these people to swear allegiance to a legal order that actually swears no allegiance to them. 
It is to ask you what would be a fundamental alteration of economy, civil society, social life, such that new rights are, are available that one could make use of. And I thought that that was like a really interesting way to talk about revolution. Yeah. It isn't about violent overthrow. It is about what do you have the capacity to do? It could be violent overthrow. But I, I, probably. Yeah. It might, might be a little violence, probably, but whatever. I wanted to connect a couple of these dots. So one thing that I was thinking, too, is that, like, you know, if he's not a techno-optimist, he also has no patience for, like, Marxist Luddites, right? Oh, like, yeah. He's like, some people are going to try to stand in the way of automation, and they're ridiculous. Like, they just, they, have, they don't understand mm -hmm. what they're talking about. And this is, I think, one form of his realism, which I think connects to the stuff that you were just saying about, like, what is the right actually, and it's the power. He says something, I think it can almost serve as a definition of being like a political realist when he critiques some suggestions made by like progressives to like, oh, yeah, you got these displaced people, uh, these outsiders like, oh, just like put them to work, like building hospitals or something. And he's like, you're ridiculous. And the reason you're ridiculous is because you don't have a realistic analysis. You're talking like we already live in a socialist country. And in fact, we live in a capitalist one. So just being like, oh, great, we've got all these like hands, idle hands. Let's put them to work, like employing them, like b making like, you know, in great infrastructure for the people or, you know, all this. He's like, that's not how, that's not what drives development under these conditions. Right. What drives actual movement economically in the, in the world in which we live is return on capital investment. So like, you know, don't talk to me about like using the forces of the economy <laughs> to like, just like to do good. Like, what do you, what do you think this is? I mean, and like the other thing I was, I wanted to say too, is that Owen before said like, you know, well, we know historically one of the ways in which our society has figured out what to do with the outsiders and it's, you know, the sprawling system of mass incarceration. But I was also thinking about like the proliferation. I wonder if you guys have something to say about this of like what Graeber calls bullshit jobs, right? Yeah. Or like, or like, you know, he talks in, I mean, all over this, there's like instances where he's like criticizing like make work bullshit basically, right? Where he's like talking to someone who's looking at the automation problem and he's like, all right, well, you know, maybe we don't have to work, but like maybe we'll just bring all the workers back to just like watch the machines. And he's like, what are you <laughs> talking so about? Yeah. You know, but he, and he also says at some point, like, you know, we all, we all know what it's like to like be work working scare quotes and like, oh, here comes the supervisor and someone's like, all right, look busy. <laughs> that was that was me in Target. Whenever <laughs> my supervisor came, like, oh yeah, no, I'm still putting oh, these Doritos on the shelf. Yeah, oh no, so so fulfilling. <laughs> I learned so much from that. Thank you. But there's that. There's secretarial work. There's you know uh, what like Graeber calls like duct tape jobs that are like you know fixing but not really fixing problems that we could solve once and for all and just continuing to do that. Like you know this is a bit a way of like reabsorbing into like something like a formal economy this kind of surplus in a way that's like, I don't know, it allows for like the dissipation of the structural antagonism, but while, you know, retaining it in principle. And then at the same time, as Lillian, you were saying like, I mean, one of like the myths of like, if you buy like the sort of standard economic story is that like the development and industrialization of countries in the global South will take the route of increasing formalization of labor. And that's just not been true. It's not been true for a half a century. Informal economies and labor pools are like fully part and parcel of the functioning of these places that have been highly become highly industrialized in the past couple decades and you know maybe that's a problem <laughs> if we're actually true interested in, in advanced like, capitalist countries that don't have yeah, very strong no, true. labor market protections i think somebody wrote i think said alex hochili he wrote an article called the brazilianization of the world that like mm -hmm. i don't know made a lot of sense to me politically and economically I mean, I think that, like, the one thing that, like, 
this makes me think about a lot is just on whether or not development is desirable. So like, I'm just going to say, I think it is desirable, but like, I wonder if there are paths that are not capitalist economic development. Like, I feel like that's kind of what Boggs is inviting us to ask. And I'm not sure it's Mm -hmm. exactly what he meant, but like, you know, when he has these tensions where he's like work less or like, but we also need some structure and like, you can't, use like we live in a capitalist society not a socialist society so you can't just like think full employment is going to solve this problem like i think all of that is really right for the most part and i think that he gets the the dynamism of the system in a way that like you know probably other labor movement people at the time didn't it it just makes me wonder like is there a different model of development that isn't capitalist development because when i just when we say workless, it's like there has to be a way of bringing automation and high levels of labor activity productivity to everyone and like making it work for them. Otherwise, mm. like there's no point in talking about that. Like what are you going to do? Repeasantize people and then like some people <laughs> have high you know, so like there has to be yeah, a way That doesn't sound great. No. No. You know, like the, some people are just going to eat shit and the other people are just going to be workless. And then we're going to be like, oh, that's good. They have their traditions. That's nice. And then we get to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least they have their traditions. They, they love it. They love it. They've been doing it for centuries. I won't yeah, ask we get, why. We're not Eurocentric anymore. You can have your traditions. We're just going to work less and you guys can do what you do. You know, like whatever. Um, so there's a, a meta question about how to develop in a way that doesn't create these structural contradictions. And like, I wondered a little bit if he was kind of an accelerationist, but I was like, I don't know. I'm not necessarily, but it just, there is a really interesting question about the political imagination it takes to, to do something like that. Because when Mm -hmm. he's telling people like, stop thinking you can prevent this. The only answer to that Mm. question is we have to actually do something to facilitate it in the right way. Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of the answer to this question is, and this is the part we haven't touched on so much yet, is, you the the book takes a hard turn towards internationalism, especially when talking about war, talking about, you know, revolutions elsewhere. He explicitly talks about Latin America, which is really interesting reading now because, you know, we're, we're now getting for mm-hmm. once, like some good news coming from somewhere in the world, yes. um, you know, um, uh, another pink tide as it were. And, you know, he's, his counsel is basically there. One, no one can say whether this will be ultimately successful, but you sitting here in the States, have really nothing to say about this. You don't have a right to meddle. And so I th- the reason why I think this is partially an answer to the question is to you, it seems like the way that he is thinking is that you know, organically, and organically does not mean automatically. It just means according to the social conditions in that specific space, that you know, these types of movements will arise. And the, the best that one can do is to try not to be in the way of those movements. And he seems to think that these movements will have to have a left direction and so for him at least in his mind this short pamphlet this also starts to solve the problem of is there going to be budding heads how how are these going to relate to one another but he definitely thinks that globally you know with attention to do specificism of the particular constraints in geographic areas etc that politics needs to be put in command of economy 
Mm-hmm. And you know, and that is where problem solving, at least that's a necessary condition for problem solving to arise when it comes to issues of development. Rather than, you know, let's make sure the United States gets good and workless and the rest of the world turns into an, an industry factory of immiseration. So I also thought that was really interesting that you know, all of a sudden there's this leap from you think he's just talking about, you know, he lived in Detroit. He's just talking about Detroit or the United States, but he's like, no, this is a global problematic that, you know, that we need to think from. And we need to have a politics that is you know, sufficiently aware that it cannot dictate the terms of social movement and you know, the working of contradictions to places um, elsewhere in the world. Yeah, don't listen to Americans about politics. That's really not. <laughs> yeah. so for, for I mean, that might have been the truest thing Bog said. Everyone's like American. Just ignore us. Literally true. ignore everything we do unless we are trying to hurt you, which is often. Yeah, do not certainly don't listen to me. Good God. Yeah. yeah. But listen to this podcast though. Definitely like, listen to the podcast the sign up on Patreon. It's the exception that proves a rule. I do think that, you know, the heart of that politics ruling over the economy, as opposed to the other way around, which is, you know, one one way of understanding what's wrong, what's what's at the root of that corruption in class society under capitalism, has to be severing that tie, right? Between the duty to produce or this imperative to work and the right to life and to live and let live and to self-determine, right? Like this is still, I mean, this is actually really nice almost, right? This is something to say to liberals and use this as a litmus test. Like, hey, do you think you should, like everyone should only be allowed to live if they're like working a job? Like yes, that's, ask them that, see what they say. Yeah. We all, this is like- Let's an, see if they're honest. Just, yeah, see if they're honest, because yeah. this is like a fundamental orienting principle of capitalist society, yeah. and it's bonkers. It's it's ridiculous, you know, for any yeah. number of reasons. Like, there's also just like, you know, the fact that like only a relatively small percentage of, of us are working at any given time, especially in the advanced capitalist countries, right? Like, the elderly don't, people with certain disabilities don't, children don't. And then there's people who are also like, you know, supposed to be working, but are pushed out for various reasons. And it's like, do you think that they should all just die? Like, what is this? And I want to be like clear because I'm imagining, you know, this liberal saying, no, everyone has a right to life and the right to dignity. But then the further question is asked, so why do you co-sign a system that structurally creates it such that there is not the capacity to have a right to life and dignity if you are not working? So either there's a tension in your thought or you think rights are rooted elsewhere. And I think, you know, what's so demanding on Boggs is, you know, he's saying that there has to be some sort of coherence. If you say that is right it must be a capacity if it's a capacity and you have a system that structurally incapacitates that right then actually you don't believe that right you might in your heart of hearts but that doesn't mean much in this world or if you do believe it you're a revolutionary and you don't know it i I always come back to this point i like that okay nice you know what i mean like i always come back to this point about (laughs) people wanting to make systematic and structural critiques all the time I mean, he's very clear here, right? Like, if you have a critique of a structure and you want to change that social structure, you're a revolutionary. Don't be a coward. Own it. Or just say, (laughs) I want to change the social structure, but also the status quo is kind of good, though. Like, you know, like you're. Should have got off the pot. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, but they just opened a third-way coffee shop on my block, so I don't know. Oh, <laughs> nice. So yeah, you know, who could tell? Who could Get tell? some macchiatos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a really smart way of putting it. Like the kind of norm, like the moral kernel of the the problem. Like first of all, so maybe that's like what I was trying to articulate mm. about negligence. You know, it's like nice. if this is what rights are attached to. And that that means that, like, all these people just don't have rights because their rights are attached to their capacity 
to work, then like the system neglects them and yeah. And it'll have to, as it as it undermines the possibility of their employment. Right. And it also means that, you know, you are at least objectively, you know, co-signed to the idea that you can say there are universal rights, but it turns out there are universal rights for those who deserve it. Then even on your own <laughs> logic, rights aren't supposed to be about dessert. And then we're having a completely different conversation. Right. Or I really love Owen's turn. Or <laughs> if that is what you think, <laughs> then it turns out you actually believe something other than you thought. And in that way, comrade, come over. Let's <laughs> chat some more. Yeah. The water is <laughs> fine. being so, like, stressful. Like, it must be very stressful <laughs> to be, like, an egalitarian liberal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, like, psych- that's a- it's psychically distressing because, like, you don't, Help you believe a thing. Fix your mind. <laughs> no, but, like, you believe a thing and then you try to, like, lay out all of your normative arguments for, like, how you could make that thing happen in this system that like doesn't want it to happen. And then you just spend all of your psychic energy living in this. Mm-hmm. Very Trying stressful- to square that circle. Mm-hmm. Peg. I know. Yeah, totally. Well, and imagine like everything you want, it always has to be like, we'll have to find a way to demand it because someone has to give it to us. Cause we are incapacitated obviously. Right. <laughs> so like we lose some rights and we're like, we need to go demand that they give those back. Like, and, and, you know, I feel like, Bo- I feel like, like Bo- ask really hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's super too. hard. And I feel like Boggs's point was like, you probably didn't even have a right then. What you had was like, <laughs> you were granted the privilege of like, yeah. you know, access to something like, I don't know, let's say like reproductive rights or something. Highly for a while. conditionally. Provisionally conditionally. and conditionally. Right. Uh, like uh, uh, you had the privilege for whatever reason that conjuncturally made sense. You were given this like privilege and then it was taken, taken away. You know, and so like that's not a right. A right is something that if someone says, "Oh, we're going to take this away," like what? Do you, you don't have the power to take it away. We we have the power over. No, it. yeah, yeah. This was yeah. This goes back to his critique of like the unionism of the early twentieth century. Even when it scored these victories, he's like, or when he talks about you know the system itself will find ways. He says this, and I think the end of chapter toward the end of chapter one. Where he's like, the system will find ways, I think, of kind of softening the problem caused by these outsiders. Because what? We've got a social safety net. We've got the cushion. And he's like, what's the cushion? He's like, first of all, don't ever let them tell you that this is like a concession that they're making. He's like, first of all, if we're talking about like social welfare or housing or severance pay, unemployment benefits, he's like, that's produced by the workers. They're going to tell you that they're making a concession. Workers are still producing that shit. Let's not let's not get it twisted. It's like, and also like, that's going to go away too as soon as it's convenient for them. Like that conditionality of the gains made here is precisely the problem. And once you recognize that, and you think that there's a right to life at all, gonna have to restructure basically the entire social form. That's just, yeah. just nothing else for it. Sorry to say. Mm-hmm. I like keeping it simple like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, just the last thing I will say is, you know, what was really great about reading Boggs, it's not just like, you know, he's really smart, but like, I strive to have the clarity of oh, writing style incredible. that he has. Yeah. And I know I'll probably never get there, but God, that's this was a breath of fresh air. And I'm saying that because I'm, I'm going to torch y'all in the future when we read Ernst Block. It's. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a moment, though, where I, where I was just you know, exactly on that point, reading Boggs and thinking to myself, like, does nobody else that I read actually ever tell me what they think? <laughs> you know, because I feel like on every page, I know exactly what this person thinks. Like, yeah, I, know, amazing. I, I know where, what, what's historically informing their position. I know what they want. I know why they think what they want is justified. And you, it's, it's never lost track of. So good. 
it's it's an oasis. Well, that does it for us today. New episode of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are SB, Shiraz Sadakin, Benjamin Waite, Nicholas Wilcox, Julia Nye, Michael Sprague, Vroom, Warren Beckman, Alex Frazier, Carolyn Von Tazen, Tadio Maline, Oyster Monkey, Hannah, Dean Williams, Andrew McAllister, Scott Kirkland, Jen, Simon T, Felix T, Chance Phillips. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. You can also support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks.